Hello, I'm Matthew de Kersan Girodo. And I'm Sophie Mallet. Welcome to The Gleaning. We're both visual artists that use other people's stuff in our work. Sometimes we acknowledge it and sometimes we don't, and that's called gleaning. Essentially using material that already exists to make something else. Gleaning is standard practice for artists, even though we might not always admit it. But it does raise some pretty serious questions around creativity, ownership and private property. Depending on your point of view, gleaning can be sharing, borrowing or stealing. Today we're going to present an expanded view of gleaning as a historical right to subsist on common land, as mimicry and stealing, as an automated process, as a vibrant relationship between a person and a thing, and as a way of thinking through the morality of theft. Over the next half hour, you'll hear our ideas and ideas gleaned from elsewhere. And in the true gleaning style, it won't be clear which is which. Gleaning is the act of collecting leftover crops from farmers' fields after they've been commercially harvested. In many parts of Europe, the biblically-derived right to glean the fields was reserved for the poor, a right enforceable by law. In England, gleaning was a legal right for residents and an established part of the annual agricultural calendar. One-eighth of a labouring household's earnings could come from gleaning. Gleaning wasn't just a random affair, though. Rules were enforced to make sure everyone got a fair share of the food. During the appropriate period, the day's gleaning would start with a bell being rung to signal that the gleaners could begin, usually 8 or 9am. And the bell was rung again at 5 or 6 to mark the end of the day. Gleaning outside this time was forbidden. Gleaning bells gradually fell silent as times and customs changed. Gleaning relied on the concept of common land. Enclosure was the legal process in England of consolidating small land holdings into larger farms. Once enclosed, use of the land became restricted to the owner and it ceased to be common land for communal use. There was widespread agreement that profit-making opportunities were better with enclosed land. The enclosure of the commons and alienation of locals from the land was the start of an economic system organised around a minority class and its pursuit of profit. Enclosure played a constitutive role in the revolutionary transformation of feudalism into capitalism both by transforming land from a means of subsistence into a means to realise profit on commodity markets and by creating the conditions for the modern labour market by transforming small peasant proprietors and serfs into agricultural wage labourers whose opportunities to exit the market declined as the common lands were enclosed. Enclosure made it impossible for peasants to survive on their meagre land holdings. Peasants became wage workers forced to sell their labour to survive. This also set women and men into competition in the labour market. With the commons, dairying had been a way for women to engage in agriculture, sustaining the household through milk and dairy sales. Without a commons, no cattle could be grazed. The market for dairying skills became tight, sheep's wool was far more lucrative than cow's milk, and shearing was gendered as men's work. Women were required only for the paid work of milking and calving cows in the spring. Spring ploughing and autumnal harvesting involved heavier labour and were also often coded as men's work. This division of labour led to different prices for men's and women's employment. It is in the loss of gleaning and the enclosure of land that we find the origins of today's global wage gap. 
The modern household and its membership have their origins in the abolition of gleaning. The nuclear household of husband, wife and children emerged through shifts in the economic geography of care and production on the commons. Women's work on the commons included fuel gathering and gleaning, which made subsistence possible and sometimes provided a marketable surplus. If anything went wrong, social insurance came from networks of support, religious, personal, social, across the community. However, these arrangements were incompatible with agricultural innovations like the plough, enclosed holdings, monocultures, private property arrangements that disinherited and immiserated women, and the creation of a workforce motivated by the threats of starvation and imprisonment. Gleaning represents a lost age in which people's lives and fortunes were bound inextricably to the soil upon which they worked. Gleaning is picking and choosing. Gleaning is taking from elsewhere. It is the act of taking the most interesting, fascinating parts of the things you see and keeping them for yourself. The gleaner only wants certain parts of that which they glean, like a magpie collecting shiny objects for its nest. Of course, this magpie tendency in the magpie bird is, in reality, only folklore. Magpies are no more attracted to shiny objects than they are to anything else. As per usual, the story of the magpie is a reflection on our own behaviour. Humans are much more likely to take notice of shiny things than we are of other objects. And we string together the magpie narrative from a few unconnected examples. In this way, the invention of the magpie's fetish for jewellery, keys, foil and coins reflects shamefully on us we have been caught in the act of an anthropocentric projection, turning magpies into little thieves who steal the things that they most desire, when in fact it is us who are distracted by the shiny things that we sometimes see in birds' nests, so distracted that we invent a shameful story for an entire species. One bird that does glean is the lyrebird. It has no mating call of its own, but rather makes its song from a collection of other birds' calls, which the lyrebird hears, learns and repeats as its own. It doesn't want to deceive other birds, Rather, gleaning the best of their songs and mimicking them within a kind of mating call megamix is the impressive act which attracts a mate for the lyrebird. At first, the human narrative around this bird is one of respect. The other birds simply act out their natural instincts. One bird, one song, an unthinking repetition of a natural urge. In this interpretation, the lyrebird becomes semi-human, or at least postmodern with its ability to understand other species' behaviour and re-perform it for personal gain. But the lyrebird doesn't just repeat the calls of other birds, it also takes from less reputable sources. In one recording, the lyrebird can be heard mimicking the click of a birdwatcher's camera, and even the mechanical sound of a zoom lens. It even seems to repeat the sound of a chainsaw, presumably from loggers coming to clear the rainforest where it lives. 
This kind of mimicking humiliates the bird in human eyes. The bird can't distinguish between the good sounds of nature and the bad sounds of human technology. And even worse, it can't hear the violence being done to its own habitat by the chainsaw. But again, this shameful shaming of the lyrebird is not what it seems. The lyrebird in that famous recording is captive. It lives in a zoo, and the chainsaw sounds are more likely drills that the bird heard for weeks as the panda enclosure next door to its aviary was renovated. This particular lyrebird's call is unique and fascinating, but it can't simply be dismissed as human imposition onto the bird's natural state. It's more like a strange kind of collaboration between the bird and the context in which it finds itself. The lyrebird also lends its name, or perhaps more correctly, its name has been taken, as a brand name for a computer program which can synthesize a person's voice. This digital simulation can then say anything the user wants it to. It can force a politician to say things that they don't believe, or make dead celebrities endorse products without asking their permission. To take someone's voice and rework it to say what you want it to say is the ultimate act of violent gleaning or conceptual thievery. Humiliating the person whose voice has been taken from them and bringing shame upon the person who steals speech from another. Gleaning isn't just a process carried out by humans and animals. Computers can glean too. This kind of machine gleaning is most often experienced by us humans when we use the internet. Machine gleaning is done through algorithms, designed by humans and aided by machine learning processes. Our experience on the internet is as much about the curated selections presented to us by machine gleaning as it is about our own interests and search terms. In this sense, the internet is an archive that has begun to glean itself. Or perhaps it's more that the archive we see is always pre-gleaned by algorithms that help us find what we want, but also use information from our browsing history to predict what we might want to see in the future. The commercialization of the internet has made machine gleaning more powerful, and it has also changed the priorities of the algorithms. For example, YouTube tries to show you what you want as quickly as possible but it also tries to hold your attention for as long as possible by suggesting other videos to watch and creating automatically generated playlists that relate to your interests as understood by its algorithms. Before machine gleaning, there used to be viral videos that became unexpectedly popular. Virality was its own sort of vibrancy, unknowable and unpredictable. But since the commercialization of YouTube, with sponsored videos, pre-roll adverts, and YouTubers who make their living from posting regular videos, the algorithm is king. It decides what's at the top of the search results and what videos get recommended to watch next. People who make YouTube videos for a living have to work out ways to ensure that their content is at the top of the search results, whether by accident or design, in order to stay popular and develop an audience, they have to find a way of making videos that the algorithm likes. Machine gleaning, even in the apparently virtual space of YouTube, has real effects. As well as producing addictive behaviour in the viewers of the videos, 
Machine gleaning also induces certain kinds of behaviors in the people who make the videos. The algorithm favors YouTubers who produce at least one video every day, and it wants those videos to be over 12 minutes long. These particular numbers are more to do with the commercial concerns of YouTube than they are with the concerns of the viewers. But these figures mean that YouTubers are under huge pressure to produce in order to please the algorithm, maintain their viewership, and earn money from advertising. They become hyper-stressed freelancers, made precarious by a vicious algorithm that will drop their videos down the search results if they don't keep producing the amount and type of videos that the algorithm wants. Of course, being YouTubers, they document these stresses in their YouTube videos. You can find multiple versions of videos like this one by Elle Mills, in which she discusses her anxiety, her panic attacks, and the pressures on her mental health she experiences as a result of the machine-gleaning pressures of YouTube. It's not what I expected. I'm constantly alone, always unhealthily stressed, and always feel this overwhelming pressure. My life just changed so much so fast. My anxiety and depression keep getting worse and worse. I'm crazy for you. I started getting panic attacks and it's starting to scare me. I'm literally just waiting for me to hit my breaking point. This is all I ever wanted. And why the f am I so unhappy? It's, it, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Because, like, this is literally my dream. And I'm so unhappy. It doesn't make any sense. The outcomes of this pressure to produce aren't always predictable. In 2017, a YouTube channel called Daddy05, in which a man called Mike Martin plays pranks on his kids, became the focus of media outrage when a campaign was launched to prosecute Mike and his wife Heather for child abuse. The pranks started out innocently enough, but as the videos became more popular and Mike and Heather started making money from advertising, the pressure grew to satisfy the machine-gleaning algorithm in order to retain viewers. The pranks became more extreme, more violent and more shocking. A lot of the videos end with their children crying and screaming as Mike and Heather shout and threaten them. In one video, Mike Martin throws the kid's computer to the floor, smashing it into pieces. Wanna play games? You wanna play games, Cody? No! Wanna play games? <laughs> Let's play games, Cody! Let's play games! You wanna play games? Do you? These videos were getting hundreds of thousands of views. But because their popularity was being predicted and assisted by machine gleaning rather than human curation, no one at YouTube bothered to look into the behaviour portrayed in the videos. It took a media storm, with national news stories highlighting the abuse concerns, to force YouTube to remove adverts from the channel and take down some of the most extreme videos. We love our kids, they're the most important thing in the world to us. And we made poor parenting choices by portraying ourselves this way, but we are not bad people. Eventually, after the police became involved, Mike Martin lost custody of two of his children, who now live with their birth mother. In YouTube's machine gleaning process, decisions around what kinds of videos will be popular and which videos it selects to show to people are based purely on what will grab people's attention and what will hold people's attention even if the material that gets most attention is violent or sadistic. So they created a beast with some of these videos. The ones just showing them as a happy family home don't get that many views. Mm -hmm. But when they push the envelope, when they use the profanity, when they, when they have fights and arguments, 
They see those get those clicks, wow. and they kept trying to push the envelope, and they lost their way. See, that's part of the story, too. It's not just this family, but the fact the that people, people, people are watching. Are watching. Yeah. Human gleaning is a nuanced process based on a complex negotiation of drives and desires, aesthetics and ethics. The kind of machine gleaning used by YouTube and other websites is commercially driven and uncreative, and it can put real pressures on individual humans to modify their behavior in order to keep up with the one-dimensional desires of the algorithm. When does gleaning become stealing? Or perhaps a better question is when is stealing not stealing? Gleaning was once the act of picking up the leftover harvest that the farmer didn't need. After enclosure, the act itself of picking that leftover harvest remained the same, but the law shifted, so it was now an illegal act. It didn't matter if the harvest was unwanted. It mattered more that it was the property of the landowner the law then created a moral imperative to protect private property and everything that existed on that private property. So thoroughly ingrained into our society is this moral norm to protect property that even chatbots understand it as one of our primary concerns. Hey Hallie, it's nice to be able to talk to a woman for a change. So you don't talk with women often? That's right, but there should be limits. I don't know, but it's the Twitter people who won't talk to me. Whispers. Why? Whispers. I don't know. Ha 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 ha, crazy girl. Crazy for this girl is a song recorded by the American pop rock duo Evan and Jarn. That's great. Do you know who I am? Why not terrific? Hell, if I have forgotten, please remind me. Who? I don't remember. What do you want to talk about? That's fine. In the lingo of The Economist, the Ten Commandments talk about property rights. Marx thought that capitalism was about exploiting workers, but actually it's about property rights for everybody. That makes me sad. These two chatbots learn from previous conversations that they have with us, and through observing how we communicate on Twitter. Through machine learning, they have gleaned the most prevalent aspects of our online communication. They were left alone to talk to each other, and apart from sexism and random interjections of trivia, within a minute of conversation, there also exists a quick analysis of Marxist theory and a one-line defense of private property rights. We teach children from an early age that stealing is wrong. It's the kind of unnuanced life lesson that kids pocketing Mars bars from the corner shop need to know to avoid further embarrassment Which to their parents. Okay, yes, okay. After a stiff talk with Deb, I was pleased to see that she was on board because we had to teach Hannah all about stealing and how wrong it was. Tomato. Hannah was a little confused at first. Excuse me, we need to pay for these first. Excuse me, did you throw something in there that we didn't pay for? Strawberry. <gasps> My word, excuse me, madam. We need to pay for the apple first. Yeah. Excuse right. me, shall I call the manager? That's stealing. That is stealing. We had to set a firm example, but one that would be fun so that she would remember and know that stealing is wrong. Are you going to pay for it? Yeah. And oh, yet there okay. is nuance Let's to our perception oh, of theft. The original ideas of gleaning, which were taking for survival and from what is left behind, have continued to shape our understanding of moral development 
Essentially, our ability to understand when stealing is not stealing is central to our moral reasoning, the basis of ethical behavior. Italy has ruled that stealing small amounts of food if you desperately need it is not a criminal offense. This is based on a case involving a man by the name of Roman Ostriakov, who stole a small amount of food back in 2011, was convicted of the crime, and then later that conviction was reversed because uh, the highest court in Italy decided, hey, you know what, if someone is in desperate need of sustenance, then it doesn't really make sense to criminalize them. In this case, the classification of stealing could only be erased by desperation, by absolute necessity. And even then, this had to be proven retroactively and importantly, after the man had already spent six months in prison. If you're only taking what you need, then you are not stealing. Stealing is taking something you're not entitled to, but need can change your entitlement to an object. However, need and entitlement are moving targets that are decided by both legal and moral processes outside of the gleaner's control. American psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg used someone's ability to understand the varying obligations to sustain life or to respect private property as a means to test their moral development. He created something called the Heinz Dilemma. Heinz's wife is dying because of a special kind of cancer. There's only one drug that the doctors think might save her. It is a new formula which a pharmaceutical company in the same town has recently discovered. The drug is very expensive to produce, but the company is charging 10 times the production cost. Heinz goes to everyone he knows to borrow money, but he can only collect half of what the drug costs. He tells the CEO of the company that his wife is dying and asks him to sell it for less so if he could pay at a later time. But the CEO refuses. He can make no exceptions. The research had been very expensive and the company needs to turn in a profit. What should happen next? In the Heinz Dilemma, you're presented with options. Should Heinz steal the remedy? Should he be accountable if he does? You're asked to defend your argument and Kohlberg maintains that your response to the dilemma indicates your moral development. If you think he shouldn't do it because all stealing is bad, you're in the first stage of moral development, obedience. Here, authority is outside of the individual. The only way to escape punishment is to obey rules. There are six of these so-called stages around moral development, each new stage replacing the reasoning that came before it. The last stage, supposedly the most developed, is universal human ethics. In this stage, the reasoning goes that Heinz should steal the medicine because saving a human life is a more fundamental value than the property rights of another person. This whole view of ethics, and the example used to classify your own individual development of ethics, rests on the hierarchy of subsistence being of greater value than private property. A moral hierarchy established in agricultural gleaning. Stealing is not wrong if you're using it to survive. Stealing is not stealing if it's gleaning. Gleaning produces a specific kind of relationship between the gleaner and the material they glean. It is a creative relationship, 
but it is also an acquisitive relationship. The gleaner comes across a lot of material, but they acquire only what they want. In this way, gleaning is an act of creative consumerism, a practice fueled first and foremost by what the gleaner chooses. In gleaning, unthinking desire is mediated by supposedly rational tools of choice and selection. Think of the gleaner as a window shopper, a browser, passive until active, passing through the infinite expanse of cultural retail space, waiting for something to catch their eye. But what is the character of this material, this material that the gleaner finally decides upon, picks up and takes away? This material has the character of what Jane Bennett describes as vibrant matter. It is material that calls out to the gleaner. It catches the gleaner's eye, but it does so in a two-way active process between the gleaner and the gleaned. For the gleaner, this vibrant material has two distinct, somewhat contradictory features. The first is that by virtue of its particular location and the fortuity of being in the right place at the right time, it makes the difference. It makes things happen and it becomes the decisive force. In other words, the gleaner suddenly realizes that this particular material is the only material that can do the job. It becomes suddenly necessary, even though it might be the first time the gleaner has ever taken notice of it. In this exact moment, it is exactly what the gleaner most wants and needs. The second feature of this vibrant material, which seems to contradict the first, is that the material that catches the gleaner's eye doesn't necessarily give itself over to the gleaner as easily as the material that is rejected. Unlike that other material, the vibrant material strikes them as somehow strange or distant. It recedes from view, even in its vibrancy. In fact, its vibrancy is partly down to the way it eludes the gleaner's understanding. It cannot be passed over because it cannot be slotted into place. It can't be reduced to an example of its type. It spills the boundaries of categories imposed by an inadequate language and therefore can never fully be known. This vibrant material is the only thing that can do its job, but in a way, even the gleaner doesn't really know what that job is. The vibrant material catches the eye of the gleaner, but it is not necessarily for the gleaner. Its vibrancy points elsewhere, towards other things that the gleaner might never fully understand. Vibrant material is irreplaceable and yet unknowable. Consumer relationships are normally understood to be about the actions of the consumer. The consumer's choices, their desires, their needs. Vibrancy complicates things. In this way of understanding the relationship between gleaner and gleaned, acquisition is an active two-way process. The gleaner sees the material they want, but it is the material that does the job of catching the gleaner's eye. The material calls to the gleaner, while at the same time receding from view. It is the only tool for the job, but it writes its own job description. Gleaning is a peculiar form of acquisition in which it is not always clear who has acquired who. 
whether the gleaner has taken possession of the material or been possessed by it. Gleaning, that's the old way. My mother would say, pick everything up so nothing gets wasted. But sadly, we no longer do, because machines are so efficient nowadays. But before, I used to glean, together with my neighbours, for wheat and rice too. I would put my big apron on and we'd go gleaning ears of wheat. Lovely ears we would find. A whole day in the sun, with gnats and mosquitoes biting, it wasn't too nice, but we liked it. In the evenings, we were exhausted. Once home with our bags and our aprons, we'd have a good time laughing and drinking coffee together. I was born in that farmhouse, and I'll die there too. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks very much, all of you. I'm mixed up. You've confused me now. This has been a Bad Vibes Club production by me, Matthew de Curzain Girardo, and by Sophie Mallet. It was commissioned by G39 and Chapter as part of James Richards' Wales in Venice exhibition. Thanks to everyone at G39 and Chapter, especially Samuel Hasler, Thanks to James Richards and thanks to Resonance.